I am proud to be a Christian. In the best sense of the word, we have every reason to rejoice in the unsurpassed splendor of the Christian faith. Let me give three reasons. Number one is Jesus Christ. The author and champion of our faith is without peer among the founders of every other religion in light of the beauty of His character, the superiority of His teaching, and the wonder of His ministry to people. Jesus Christ, our Founder. Secondly, no other holy book on earth begins to compare with the depth and the beauty and the comfort and the wisdom and prophetic majesty of the Bible. There simply is no peer. Thirdly, the Christian ethic or lifestyle rooted in the Bible's teaching is demonstrably superior to the ethic of all other religions. Every earthly culture is run by sinners, and that is true of every culture that is influenced by Christianity. But those cultures that are most influenced by Christian thought reflect the highest degrees of human creativity, prosperity, charity, and respect for human life. With these three ideas sitting there in front of us, we need to recognize that all this splendor hinges on one objective historical event. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now there are many Christian churches this day who say that they follow Jesus. I use the word Christian broadly, but they say they follow Jesus. They revere the Bible to some degree. To some degree, they might even argue that the Christian ethic is a worthy ethic. But because they deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, they would be embarrassed by everything that I've said here this morning thus far. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of the Word of God, the exclusivity of the Christian ethic is an embarrassment to them as a message. Why? Because the one historical objective proof of the reality of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is denied. Jesus has risen in spirit. He continues to influence us, but He has not bodily defeated death. We gather this Lord's Day because we believe that Jesus is alive. There is no other reason to gather. It is Jesus' resurrection in fulfillment of prophecy, thousands of years of prophecy, and His own prophecies that prove that He is the Lord of heaven and earth, the only Savior from sin and God's judgment. We gather this Lord's Day to hear the unsurpassed Word of the Lord. We indeed gather this Lord's Day to learn how to live for God's glory and for the good of those who are around us. But we also gather this day to bear witness. That is why we come on this first day of the week. That is why I trust you are here as an act of worship to say with your presence, Jesus is alive. And the risen, reigning, soon-to-return Christ is sovereignly broadcasting casting this message of His victorious resurrection throughout all the world. It is not only we who are His witnesses to a memory of Christ, but Jesus Himself is witnessing this message of His death and resurrection through us. And the gates of hell cannot stop this mission. 
The message of reconciliation with God through the resurrection power of Jesus is a message that the powers of hell constantly assault. The messages have come through the internet this week of Christians who have given their life for Christ, of those who are being persecuted for the cause of Christ. People can hurt the body, as we sung in that first song today, but they cannot destroy the mission of Christ because He is living, He is reigning, and He is sending this message of salvation in His death and resurrection through His people. Nothing can thwart that plan. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth will have His way, and the message will be made known for the joy of all the earth. What a joy for us to stand on the edge of that lake today and to see the rescue that Jesus Christ wins as one identifies in the death and resurrection of Christ. This is Jesus doing. He is alive. Well, all of this being said, as we come to Acts chapter 22, in the last part of this chapter, if you'll make your way there, things sure don't look this positive for the Apostle Paul right now. In fact, from everything that we can see, Paul is losing This witness of Christ, this one who will carry the message of salvation, who is planning to go to Rome, he's losing the battle. Acts chapter 21, almost torn limb from limb by a hostile crowd of Jews. He is arrested by Romans, which would normally cause anybody to be pretty scared right there, but in this case, it turns out to be a really good thing. It's the best of options, is to be rescued by the Roman troops. And as those Roman troops take him into the fortress right off of the temple courts there to flog him to within an inch of his life, the people outside, the Jews, are screaming, kill him, away with him. He doesn't seem to be winning. Chapter 22 of Acts, we have the defense before the Jews as he stands on the steps leading up into that Antonia, the Roman fortress there. His message is moving along and there's great attention to it until he mentions the fact that God has a saving purpose for the Gentiles. And at the mention of the mission to the Gentiles, the crowd erupts in further hostility. Away with such a fellow, they scream. He should not be allowed to live. So Paul finds himself again imprisoned in the Roman fortress. And his witnessing days appear to be over. Indeed, they are over in Jerusalem in one sense. Paul appears to be at the mercy of forces that are far greater than he. We need to bring this with us into this text. Paul seems to be at the mercy of forces beyond his control. But as we pick up the account, we see that Christ is working with sovereign power behind the scenes. There is a risen Christ that the world doesn't see. And that risen Christ is laboring to proclaim the gospel so that we see, beginning at 22 and verse 30, Paul witnesses to the hope of the resurrection before the Sanhedrin. He witnesses to the hope of the living Christ before the Supreme Court in Israel. Chapter 22, verse 30, we pick up the account there. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, Claudius Lysias unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. A plot of people had yelled a lot of things. I said plot. A lot of people. We've got the plots next. A lot of people had yelled a lot of things. 
And Paul had made a coherent defense, but poor Claudius Lysias remained entirely confused. What is the truth about this part? Listen, maybe if I take him down from the fortress to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court in Israel, maybe then if I can hear them talking together, I'll figure out what the problem is. They certainly hate the man. He seems like a reasonable man on some level to me, but I just can't figure out what's going on. So he brings him down from the Antonio, the fortress, on the northwest corner of the temple, down to the southwest corner of the temple, past the southwest corner of the temple courts, in this council chamber of the Sanhedrin. It's probably an informal meeting because a Roman official would not be allowed to pull together the Sanhedrin in an official meeting to consider the law, but probably an informal meeting, and they're only too happy to... Uh, oblige and to make their point known because they want Paul dead. He stands before this august assembly, his life hanging in the balance. These men want to kill him as he looks into their eyes. The strong, there is strong pressure undoubtedly to cower and to evade the truth. But Paul stands before them faithfully. Verse 1 of chapter 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He does not mean that he's a sinless man. What does he mean? In this context before the Sanhedrin, considering the Mosaic law, what he means to say is that he stands before them with clear conscience. He is a man who is honoring God and is faithful to him. Now, participating in this hearing is the high priest in Israel, Ananias. What we know about this man historically is that he was brutal, he was greedy, he was godless, he was a scheming politician. As an evil man, he apparently took offense that Paul would claim to be above reproach. He may have taken it as an insult that the Jews were in such upheaval against this man, in fact, wanting him dead, and he claims to be honoring God. Whatever it was that lit his fire, verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? They have violated Leviticus 19, verse 15. They have violated it when they hit Paul against the law, a man uncondemned. Paul's response, was it sinful? Did he just lose his temper? It's possible. 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 23 says of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Paul is clearly reviling the high priest here. I think, though, though undoubtedly angered, that his anger may in fact be justified. I think the parallel may be less with 1 Peter 2 and verse 23 and more with Matthew 23, where Jesus uses this very same idea, you are whitewashed tombs in your hypocrisy. And I think that's probably what Paul is saying here. Whitewashed tomb, they would use a whitewash, they didn't have white paint. But the, the wealthy would bore a hole into a side, a ledge of rock, and, and create a tomb there and cover that tomb. And there would whitewash around the tomb so that people would be aware not to get anywhere near it so as to become defiled ritualistically. So, what is a whitewashed tomb? It looks kind of gleaming and nice on the outside, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. And that's, well, 
even though we may miss a lot of why he says what he says and exactly what it means in culture, it's pretty sure that it's not a compliment. You whitewashed wall, and he gets struck in the mouth by saying this. Verse 4, This riles the anger of those who stand by the high priest and say, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul refers to Exodus 22 and verse 28. He seems to imply that were Ananias not the high priest, the rebuke would have been justified. It's not exactly an apology. It's not really a confession of sin. Paul is saying merely that he did not use a tone that conveyed appropriate respect for the office Ananias occupied. He did not use wording that would have honored that, but it was an error of ignorance. Paul is demonstrating here certainly true humility and demonstrating obedience to the law himself as he responds. Just pause here for a moment to say, here again is this same theme. The consistent testimony of Christians is respect for governing authorities. Through the ages, we believe in the sovereignty and the providence of God. And if we really believe that God sovereignly places authorities in position, we will not revile those who are in authority. We will not disrespect them. It doesn't mean that they don't live lives that are disrespectful. Certainly many of them do. But it means that we respect the office, that we treat them with dignity. This has always been the Christian teaching. Because God reigns supreme. He can remove any ruler, and He can place any ruler, and He does. And we respect that, whether they are good or bad. And we see that evidence here with Paul as he uh, speaks this way before the Sanhedrin. Now he moves forward quite quickly in verse 6. And when he perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brother, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Sadducees and Pharisees, without going into detail, were simply two competing sects within Judaism, and there was a great gap between the two. You take congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans, and they look like bosom buddies compared to these two groups. They were at each other's neck. They hated one another, though they wouldn't admit it. But they fought violently. Paul had trained as a Pharisee, and he believed as Pharisees did in the resurrection of the body, that the Spirit of God given to man will exist eternally, that God's Spirit is eternal and the Spirit that He gives is eternal, that we do not cease to exist, but that there will be a resurrection from the dead. Now he's starting here in very general terms as he seeks common ground. I don't think, though, that the point is that Paul is on his heels in verse 5. He's kind of blown it a little bit, and now he says, oh, you know what? There's Sadducees and Pharisees out here. I'm going to issue a word that's going to divide the house. And I'm going to try to get people on my side, some of them, and try to get the the, the attention off of what I've just said. I don't think that's what he's doing. Paul simply could see that there were Pharisees in the crowd who would like what he was about to say. He would connect with them and develop some common ground for his message On the other hand, he would very much offend the Sadducees who do not believe in resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus is really what's at the heart of Paul's message. He just never once again gets to finish the message. 
He starts generally and continues to work his way down to the very essence of the point. And in some sense, he gives that essence when he says, I stand before you with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead. This is his message, the resurrection. And that message is rooted in Jesus Christ's resurrection. There is no resurrection apart from it. So I don't think this is a mere rhetorical device. I think this is a consistent message. And how do you know that? Because it's not only as he sees Sadducees and Pharisees, it's also when he stands before the Roman officials. In each of these defenses, he says, I stand here to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It didn't matter what the crowd was. If he found no Sadducees and Pharisees before him, he would have said, I stand here to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had seen the risen Christ, and there were witnesses who had seen Him and walked with Him, and this is what is at the core of the Christian message. little interpretation here for us, verse 7, And when He had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? That's probably referring to Jesus' vision, the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Maybe this was a disembodied spirit that spoke to him. Their reasoning is far more political than anything else. But we notice here at the end of verse 10 in these verses that the house is divided by providence. Providence divides the house that if united might have conspired to concoct charges against Paul leading to his execution. But they are completely divided. They had conspired together to kill Jesus. They're not able to conspire together to kill Paul because of the providential working of God. Verse 10, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, here we go again, commanded the soldiers to go down to take him away from among them by force and bring bring him into the barracks. Once again, it's the Roman officials who killed Christ, now rescuing his servant Paul. Jesus is controlling the scene. Paul, as we look at him, is bobbing like a cork on troubled waters. But God is protecting his servant because God has a plan to use his servant to continue declaring salvation through salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is brought back then to the barracks and spends another night there. It had to be a night of some trouble for him. Undoubtedly a bit discouraged, a bit fearful. It looks like he's losing entirely. Maybe this will be the place where his life ends. But then a visitation takes place that night in the jail. A glorious visitation. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Undoubtedly, Paul takes great courage from this, and it probably is part of the reason that there's so much calm in his soul as he deals with the troubles that he deals with over two years in prison here in Judea. It links to the vision in chapter 18 at Corinth where Christ said, Do not be afraid. 
But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. There it is, I am with you. My presence is with you, Paul. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That was his promise in Corinth that he wouldn't get harmed, not his promise in Jerusalem. But ultimately, he wasn't harmed there either. Jesus is the sovereign Savior. He uses his people to proclaim his saving grace. And he protects his witness to hear that message. In fact, you may be here today separated from Christ the Savior. What we find here is Jesus saying in chapter 18, I have many people in this city. And we find evidence as Paul arrives in Jerusalem that Jesus had many people in that city as well. There are people that Jesus is bringing to Himself. I talked to an individual this week at length about the salvation in Christ, and I said, listen, there's, one, there's two things that are possible. It is either possible, number one, that this is a passing interest that will fade away, or God is drawing you to Himself, and this will not pass away. You know that you're alienated from God. It was clear in our conversation. Is God drawing you? And I wonder if I speak to anyone here today that God is drawing you. It doesn't go away. There's a sense of your sin. There's a sense of your alienation from God. You know that you do not please God and that you do not find pleasure in Him ultimately. But He is drawing you to Himself to see that Jesus Christ's death atones for sin and He is alive. His resurrection life can be given to those of us who are dead in spirit and separated from Him. And that grace may be given to rescue us from the judgment against our sin and to give us new life in Jesus Christ. Come to Him today. If He's drawing you in, trust Him. Place your faith in the work that He has done for salvation. But here, Jesus stands by Paul with an assurance that he will reach Rome because he wants him to testify to lost souls concerning salvation there. We can say this very clearly as Jesus talks to Paul in the midst of all of this trouble. Jesus, not circumstances, are in charge of God's life. As the angel of God stood with Daniel's three friends in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, so Jesus stands here with Paul in prison when everything seems to be against him. And Christian, God doesn't play favorites. There's people like Paul who are into harder situations than we are. A situation that called forward the presence of Jesus Christ. But having said that, he doesn't play favorites. If we are proclaiming the message of Christ crucified and risen, if our souls are rooted in the resurrection life of Christ, united with Him, He will never leave us or forsake us because it's His mission. He is working through us to proclaim the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. It's not simply us who through our own courage and effort are making Jesus known. It is Jesus who's making Himself known through the, witnesses, through the witness of His people. And so here there is protection. Isn't it interesting as we search out the twists and turns of providence here? What happened in Acts 5 when there was imprisonment of the apostles? God delivered them from jail in the middle of the night. What happens in Acts chapter 12? Peter is delivered from prison. 
What happens in Acts chapter 16, there's an earthquake and the jailer himself takes Paul to his, and Silas to his home and feeds them and is baptized. What happens here? Paul stays imprisoned. He's going to stay imprisoned in Judea for over two years. God has his reasons. He has his purposes. And at this point, Paul isn't being set on ice. Paul is being put in the most protected possible place for him. Outside are people clamoring for his death. Here, as a Roman citizen, he is is cared for and protected on some level. Jesus is running the show. And his presence will go with Paul. Christian, we need to understand this is the same Christ who reigns today. This is the same Christ who goes with us as we proclaim His truth. If our lives are rooted in the resurrection of Christ, we have nothing to fear. He's going to use your life then to bear witness to His saving grace one way or another. And nothing will touch you until He permits it to touch you. Nothing. You will accomplish the work of the Gospel that He wants you to accomplish in this world. You are part of His global plan to proclaim this truth to a dying world. And were Paul to have been able to finish his message, undoubtedly he would say, you know of this hope in resurrection. We find it, for instance, in Daniel chapter 12 in our Hebrew Scriptures. You know this hope of resurrection. Let me tell you, that hope has been realized in Jesus Christ. He defeated death bodily. And He will bring into His resurrection power those who put their faith in Christ. But He didn't finish. Because once again, there is a plot against His life. Verse 12, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Don't feel too sorry for them. There was lots and lots of ways to get out of oaths. I would imagine they got really, really thirsty along the way, but... Don't read too much into it. Verse 13, There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. From the Antonia to the council chambers, They would have led Paul along some fairly narrow streets. You can only get so many soldiers around him. And an assassination plot by 40 individuals would have undoubtedly been successful. Paul is about to die. But we contrast two things here. We contrast verse 11 and the circumstances there and verse 12. In verse 11, Jesus says, I will guard you till you reach Rome. In verse 12, 40 people saying, we will kill him. We have taken an oath, a curse against ourselves if we don't. Satan is laboring at full throttle against Jesus' mission. But providence will not sleep and it will not falter. We see the plot foiled beginning at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. I have to stop there for just a moment without going into detail. If you know the book of Esther, this is the the king couldn't sleep that night line. Who on earth is this nephew of Paul? We have no idea. And how on earth does he hear this plot? It's really not ultimately confusing when we know of the sovereignty of God and His providence. He is working through 
these players to accomplish his purposes. So here's the king could not sleep line. Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And he went and entered the barracks and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, and now they are ready waiting for your consent. As a Roman citizen, Paul would have been privileged to share to have visitors share with him along to meet his needs, and as a Roman citizen, he wielded sufficient influence to persuade the centurion to go talk to Claudius Lysias. You notice that he takes the young man by the hand. I I can't prove this, but it certainly indicates a fairly young man to take him by the hand and to draw him off. And you can also see that no one's intimidated at all by this nephew. They're not scared that he's got a dagger under his cloak or anything like that. They just take him aside. What do you have to say? And they seem to be very cooperative with him. God has assigned the perfect young man to be in the perfect place at exactly the right time. And he delivers the message. And this message will save his uncle as the tribune believes him. Verse 22, not only believes him, but trusts him. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Believe me, Claudius Lysias does not want to lose Paul. But he puts everything, it appears, right on the shoulders of this young man. So he's apparently old enough to be trusted, young enough to not be a threat. He takes the message and keeps it to himself. And the governor, the tribune, moves forward. We then see, think verse 11, verse 12, Jesus' intention, the assassin's intention. We now look at this next section beginning at verse 23 as Paul is protected and delivered to Felix at Caesarea. Verse 23, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. We have no idea what the word spearmen means. There's no other reference to this word anywhere. Uh, some have thought that it really is just talking about uh, those who are bringing along extra horses. But even if we, we reduce by 200, we've got 270 who are ready to kill surrounding Paul. And they go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and they provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. They leave at 9 p.m. in pitch darkness. There's no street lights. There's no headlights on cars. There's just whatever was overhead. They head out surrounding Paul with this body of soldiers protecting him and moving out that late at night at the fastest possible speed in that day on horseback. Along with them goes a letter. Claudius Lysias writes the letter to this effect, to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings, verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. 
You see the phrase, having learned? There's really no, no way to get around the fact that he's saying, I learned first that he was a Roman citizen and I came in and saved the day. Do you remember facts that way? <laughs> it's playing a little bit loose with the reality, isn't he? Uh, one has said very uh, well that uh, the letter is a dexterous mixture of truth and falsehood. Claudius Lysias, now think of this. It's, it's not just for our entertainment. Luke is writing to people, and he wants them to see this, and he wants them to understand the interaction between Christianity and the Roman officials. He is presenting Claudius Lysias here very honestly. He's playing a little bit with the facts. He's not real honest, making himself look really good. Yet, on the other hand, no Roman official is ever going to harm Paul. They're all going to protect him. There's a point there. Luke isn't just playing a game and just making the Roman officials look good to get his way. He's being very honest with who they are. Everybody knows who Felix is. Everybody knows who Claudius Lysias is. They know these men with all of their weaknesses. Felix was the governor of the Roman province of Judea, a ruthless and degenerate ruler. Everyone knows that. But what Luke also wants them to see is Christianity is no threat. There's an apologetic point, and there is certainly truth about the providence of God here. The letter continues at verse 29. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was to be a plot against the man, I sent him on to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, in the apologetical emphasis of Paul here, what is he saying? First of all, Christianity, Christians are not insurrectionists. Christianity is no threat to Rome. Secondly, he is saying Paul is innocent, a point the Roman officials will continue to note all up the line. Thirdly, the rub with Jews is biblical interpretation. This is a matter about revelation. Now, what he does not say is obviously the fact that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords is going to have some implications in Roman's culture. But what he can say is there's no one here that's an insurrectionist. And there's no one here that has violated any law. And you should understand that if you deal honorably with this prisoner as these other Roman officials did, even though they weren't perfect people. So, verse 31, the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. We have no idea exactly where that would be, but somewhere between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. They've made such good time. There's no concern that those assassins would have followed them at this point. They let some go back, and then just the horsemen move even more quickly with Paul from Antipatris to Caesarea on the sea, the seat of the um, Roman governor of Judea. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor... They presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, probably out loud, Paul hears the letter and communicates with Luke what was written. What pro he learned what province he was from to make sure it's under his jurisdiction. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, Felix, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. 
Herod's Praetorium, built by Herod the Great, this magnificent palace that juts out into the sea, has now become Felix's residence and also the prison. So Paul is in residence at the nicest house in the whole region. I doubt the prison was probably taken care of real nicely, but he was down there in Felix's basement, most likely, for, the, for more than two years trusting in Jesus' word that he, as a witness of Christ, would make his way to Rome. We see as the hand of providence in all of this, the Jesus who never abandons his people, making sure that the message is proclaimed and leading Paul to Rome. He provides a commander in Claudius who continues to protect the apostle who sees far better than most Gentiles that he is protecting an innocent man whose only failure was in view of the Jewish law. He provides the palace with Felix. He provides the transportation between to protect Paul. Paul is in God's hands. Yet as we look at it, Paul's life looked like a bobber on a turbulent sea. He had no power in himself to withstand the assaults of against his mission, and all of his followers combined could not have stood against the Roman army. We ask this question, I mean, it's really a head-scratcher. Why does God work this way? I have my minister here, my servant, faithful witness, at point A, and I'm going to get him to point B. He almost gets ripped limb from limb twice. He turns the Sanhedrin into a riot. He is almost flogged to an inch of his life. A nighttime journey on horseback, that actually was a benefit, but you can imagine, all the way eventually to Caesarea and now in prison for over two years. Why does God think like this? Why does he act like this? Why does he say, I'm going to move you from here to there? And he goes through all this trouble. The simple answer is we don't know. What we need to do is trust Him. He's moving many of us from point A to point B in ways we don't understand. Why is there so much pain involved? We don't know. What we need to do is to trust His hand of providence. What we do know and what we must trust is that the Lord's timing is perfect, that His purposes are unalterable, and His sovereign power protects us so that we might spread the good news of Jesus' resurrection power with courage and with expectation. So let us leave this assembly today proud of our Christian heritage in the the right sense of the word. But lest we play the ultimate hypocrite, let us also leave anxious to be used by the risen Christ to proclaim the glories of our Savior who rose from the dead and who reigns today, and who is conquering hearts and giving life to those lost in sin. Jesus Christ lives. May we live that way. And may it be clear to all who see us that our life is rooted with Christ in God. That it is rooted to this One who has defeated death. And if you gather with us today and are not born again, know that God has used this sermon to point you to Jesus who lives today. He is the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is only one way that you will stand before Him. You will come before Him. There is only one way that you will be welcomed into His presence. And that is if you have dealt with your sin 
and your rebellion against his lordship. Good news is that Jesus laid down his life to pay that penalty so that he could be just and the justifier. He's not a king who's going to look at all of your sin and just say, you know what, let's just forget about this. He is a king who must judge sin. But he is a king who has paid that judgment. And as you place your faith and your hope in him, he will give you salvation so that we can stand before this resurrected Christ forgiven. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as there are those here who need to respond to this message of salvation, we certainly cannot proclaim it all in its fullness here, but I pray that they would seek out someone now as they leave and that they would respond to the gospel of Christ in repentance and faith in Christ alone, through grace alone. Father, for those of us who know you, may you teach us to proclaim the gospel. I pray that we would grow in our capacities, in our interest, in our courage to make the resurrection of Jesus known. This is the place where the ultimate enemy of anyone we talk to has been defeated. Death has been defeated and Satan has been conquered. I pray that we would proclaim that message freely and widely and that you would bless and pour out your mercies and your Spirit upon our efforts that we might bear fruit to the glory of our Savior. Father, we give you praise and thanks that we gather this day as an act of worship, assembling together to say that Jesus lives. And may we now respond with all of our heart to this great truth to which our souls are linked and joined together in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.